This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. So here's something different. Tesla, it's rallying. It's sitting on a record pile of cash, and it posted a surprise profit. It's what I like to call a wait what moment. Stock, as I mentioned, is soaring. Uh, Dana Hall, Dana Hall, excuse me, of course, is technology reporter at Bloomberg News. On the phone from our San Francisco bureau, along with Ross Gerber, president and CEO of Gerber Kawasaki Wealth and Investment Management. He's joining us on the phone from Santa Monica, California. Dana, I want to start with you. I mean, your coverage of Elon and Tesla, you know, we all love to read. You keep us up to date. I have to say, when some of the numbers started to cross, I was kind of like, is this a mistake? Uh, what did you make of the report? Well, it was interesting because going into the report, there were kind of two metrics that a lot of analysts and investors were focused on. One was gross margin, uh, which is you know the profit that they're making mm-hmm. on the cars. And the other was revenue. And were we going to see a sort of year-over-year decline in revenue? And I think what was fascinating was that... We did see a year-over-year decline in revenue, but they really beat on margins, and they posted a profit, which I don't think anybody was expecting. And so uh, the stock just exploded after hours, was up like 20%. And, I mean, this long-running kind of dispute between the bulls and the bears, I mean, the bulls really won out last night. Go ahead, Ross. So what did you make of it? Well, similar thoughts uh, that you just heard, you know, it's very hard to call whether Tesla is going to make a profit or not. Um, we knew, obviously, how many cars they sold because they told us. But with a changing mix of cars and with the general change in where they were from a year ago, so it's hard to compare numbers from a year ago because they were just fulfilling the most expensive, you know, profitable orders that they had right off the bat. So last year wasn't really an accurate time frame to really – determine if demand was good and supply could meet demand. And what we saw with Tesla is demand is off the charts, which is what we suspected because we we know this. And then secondly, they were able to deliver the cars. But more importantly, you know, when I met with Jerome Gillian, who's running operations in March, he explained to me that there was a ton of waste that was going on with Tesla before he took over and that they were going to be able to smooth out operating performance over time and really increase margins over time. And he executed. And that's what I think most people missed with the Tesla story. Hmm. It's just a wonderful job Jerome has done in the Fremont but, factory to make this car profitable. Ross, I'm only going to, but, and Dan, you can, you address this too. I mean, there's times where we've seen this company all of a sudden come out with some very positive metrics and then they don't for a long time. I mean, Dan, that's kind of been the history here. Yeah, I mean, I think what's interesting is like the third quarter has been this kind of magic quarter now, second year in a row. They had a they had a profit in the third quarter last year. I mean, there's some seasonality to that in that you know a lot of people do car shop in summer over over you know Fourth of July and um, Labor Day. But I mean, so it, you know, it was just I think just what surprised people was um, you know Tesla has always been investing in growth and. 
you know, Elon had said that they wanted to be profitable, but no one really thought that they would be profitable. And so the fact that they did, you know, now the question is, well, can they sustain it? Will they be profitable next quarter? But right. you know, overall, it was absolutely, very, absolutely. <laughs> over overall, it was a very positive report. And I think just beyond the numbers, you know, the Model Y is being pulled forward. The gang, the Gigafactory in Shanghai is totally on track. Um, they're going to unveil a truck probably next month. So like they've got they've got like all these products coming, and it seems like after for a company that is known for sort of being behind in terms of its targets, like they actually seem to be meeting their targets. Like pulling forward the Model Y is a big deal. And yeah, so, so Ross, are we seeing just a grown-up Elon Musk running a real car company now? Is has has everything gotten fixed? <laughs> well, I would more argue that when Elon was under enormous stress and pressure to basically save the company from its production was a little over a year ago, that wasn't the normal Elon. That was yeah. a very stressed out, freaked out Elon. And basically, he saved the company. The company was going to go under, and and he, he him and Jerome saved the company. So what we're seeing now is what we should have seen maybe a year earlier, but they made mistakes, and they've rectified those mistakes. But not only rectified them, they've now improved upon themselves. And I give a lot of credit to Robin Dallenholm uh, and the SEC for making some management changes at the top, which I thought needed to be what? made. I give a lot of credit to Martin and IR and the, and the team that listened to its investors and right. what we wanted out of the company. And that's what Elon's doing. And that's why I give him so much credit so- is because he listened to me and to us and he's trying to do a better job, and now he's executing upon it. And full disclosure, Ross, you own the cars, you own the stock, you like it. You've been a big bull on it. I mean, when do we get, though, Ross, to a point where we don't have to have Elon Musk, you know, thank God he rescued the company, and just in about 30 seconds, if you can. Well, I think the company is at that point now. We're at an exciting time for Tesla. You can't underestimate the value of the China Gigafactory. And the fact that they built this thing from scratch a year ago or less than a year ago, and they're ready for production today. So with their estimates of 150,000 cars coming online over the next year yeah. um, in production, that, that's a huge jump for them. And, and, and right. again, what, what Dennis said what, about Model Y, this is an exciting car. I've been in the Model Y. It's a wonderful car. I have the three, and, and I like the Y better. And I think Elon and everybody knows that the Y is going to be a huge success. So these yeah. are, this is great news. It's a great company doing great things. And, and let's not forget, solar did really well. There's been a lot of criticism about the solar yeah. purchase of Solar okay. City. Right. We're starting to see that pay off. So da- this is a company hitting on all cylinders now, right. and I'm very excited. Dan, it's 25 seconds. Do you agree with him that Elon's not going to have to save this company again? Just quickly. It'll be interesting to see. Uh, they, they said in the release that they they believe that they could be self-funding going going forward. It will yeah. be interesting to see if they decide to do another capital raise uh, to fund future growth. All right, great roundtable, guys. Thank you so much, Dana Hull. She's our go-to person when it comes to Tesla and Elon Musk, technology reporter at Bloomberg News, on the phone from our bureau in San, San Francisco. Check her out at Dana Hull on Twitter. Ross Gerber, love talking with him, president and CEO at Gerber Kawasaki Wealth and Investment Management, on the phone from Santa Monica, California. As we said, he owns Tesla shares also owns Tesla cars. Well, as you heard Charlie break down uh, Twitter shares, they are breaking down today, falling the most in more than a year after that earnings disappointment. Let's understand what's underneath it. Kurt Wagner is a tech reporter for Bloomberg, joins us from our 99.1 studio in the nation's capital. So, Kurt, this is rough stuff. What uh, what went wrong here? 
Yeah, it was not good. Uh, there were a few issues. The first and the the kind of more immediate issue is that Twitter missed on its revenue uh, for the quarter. So revenue came in short. The bigger probably um, concern for investors is they actually issued weak guidance for next quarter and said that a few problems they're dealing with their targeted ad business might actually bleed into 2020. So when you're missing the revenue this quarter, when you're saying we're going to be weaker than we thought next quarter, and oh, by the way, we don't know exactly when this is all going to end, that uh, uh, combination is pretty much what uh, hit the stock. All right, so I'm listening to you, Kurt, and I'm thinking, not good. That means the stock's down 5 to 10%. I <laughs> would think disaster means down 20%, which is where we've got Twitter. Is it a disaster at Twitter? Well, yeah. How can you look at, uh, I think you said 21% yeah. um, and, and not call it a disaster? So I think that's a fair characterization. I mean, to be fair to them, they had some uh, positive user growth, which has historically been actually the thing that we've you know, killed Twitter on is that the the platform didn't actually grow. They weren't actually adding new people. They're actually doing that. So it's a little bit ironic that they finally figured out how to grow that audience. And yet now they're having issues on the other side. I got to ask you, I don't quite get it. I love Twitter and I find it really useful. But True. I, think I most, can confirm that you do. <laughs> but I think people in the media love Twitter. I think it's a great way to find out what's happening. People respond. Uh, I find out about different stories, new stories, new ideas. But what's interesting is why is it is it going to ultimately be a, 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 man, a model that, that is here for the long term in terms of financial existence? You know, I've covered Twitter for a long time, and what I've had to come to a realization on is it's all about expectations, right? For the mm -hmm. longest time, we expected Twitter to basically uh, be Facebook light. We expected it to either compete with Facebook or to at least be Facebook, but just a few years behind. And it, it's clearly not that. It's not yeah. even anywhere close to that. And so I think because it has that outsized influence you mentioned, because it has such a cultural and social impact, we kind of overvalue how great it might be as a business. Business. So if you just look at, at Twitter and, and what they've done over the last year and a half is they've become profitable and they've be, you know steadied things. They have uh, a CEO who's now in their looking long term. And so those things are positive when you look at the business. But again, it's all about the expectations. And I think there's some lingering here that we still think they're going to be a lot bigger than they actually well, are. And well, if I and could just say, it's a 23, almost $24 billion market cap, and we're only talking about $3 billion in revenues, Jason. Like, I guess I guess I have a hard time getting my head around that, too. Well, and you know, you're going where I I think a lot of people are going sort of rhetorically and, and almost philosophically, uh, and not to be, be, as my kids would make fun of me for saying, too grandiose about this, but like there are some big existential questions around social media, around technology, and certainly we saw that play out on the Hill yesterday. You were in the room uh, with Mark Zuckerberg. That felt like a moment. Yeah, it, it does. And he doesn't do those kinds of hearings often. This was just the second time he's been there. So just by simply showing up and taking these questions on the record, I mean, that that in and of itself is pretty newsworthy. Uh, but, you know, he we saw how big and powerful Facebook is just by the range of questions that he was asked. Right. I mean, it was asked all about uh uh, the election and how is Facebook going to protect the world from fake news or misinformation ahead of the election. He was asked about this new digital currency Libra that they're trying to push out. And he talked about, hey, if we don't build this, China is going to. So Facebook has kind of been, uh, you know, it's not just one of the biggest tech companies, but it has such a reach into all of these different areas of our lives that it's become a lot more than just uh, a social media platform. It really represents um, a lot of culture and society as well. 
So, yeah, I do wonder about Facebook. I mean, I don't know if we are in a moment in terms of, you know, do we ultimately get some kind of breakup going forward or what it means? Um, I feel like, though, at least Mark Zuckerberg has gotten the the memo on all of this, finally. (laughs) I don't think he's naive to the fact that... uh, Facebook is in bad shape right now from a uh, from a regulatory standpoint. Yes. Wow. I mean, what an interesting moment, and it's great to get your perspective for sure, Kurt. You know, across all of these tech names, as you say, you've been doing this for a long time, and I do. <clears throat> excuse me. Feel like there's a lot more to come on this story and in the near term i was with some entertainment executives yesterday and literally they were sitting and watching that aoc versus uh zuckerberg showdown it was really something to behold kurt wagner tech reporter for bloomberg uh, joining us from our 99 one studio there in the nation's capital We're going to talk about volatility, but I do want to mention a headline. This is one of the macro issues that creates volatility. UK is Jeremy Corbyn rejecting Boris Johnson's uh, bid for a new election. So uh, the Brexit uh, headlines, uh, this is for an election on December 12th. So uh, this is just crossing the Bloomberg terminal. So uh, yeah. It continues the Brexit saga. We'll see what uh, comes next. Goodness gracious. (laughs) I know. The story, many of the stories that keep on giving. Um, Also that keeps on giving is I feel like the volatility story. Uh, The BMO Low Volatility Equity Fund just checking the numbers up nearly 16% in the past 12 months. That compares roughly with a 13% gain for the S&P 500. Manager of the fund, Ernesto Ramos. um, I do want to point out too, BMO has about $263 billion in assets under management. Ernesto, based in Chicago, made his way to our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Nice to have you here with us. Thank you, Carol. Happy to be here. Well, what do you make of the volatility that we're seeing? Because we are seeing certainly a fair amount of it, although I think the VIX is still pretty low on a historical basis. But what's what's the measure of volatility that you focus on? We measure uh, volatility using a variety of risk models, and and, uh, those are forward-looking, not not just uh, backwards-looking. And right now, the interesting fact is that the, the U.S. is the third most volatile country in the developed markets, only behind Ireland and Hong Kong. And, of course, Hong Kong is, uh, has the, the risk of, of uh, the, the protests and right. so on, Ireland, the Brexit risk. And, and you wouldn't think the U.S. would be right be, be behind them in terms of risk, but, but it is. And risk has been creeping up from, from the lows of, that we saw earlier in July, uh, still off of the highs in January, but that's crept crept up to about 16% from 12 that we saw in July. So it's becoming more volatile related to all of the trade and, and other related. And Brexit is another one, right? Brexit is driving, I think, uh, some of the U.S. volatility up, but it's mostly focused around yeah, trade and the potential for a slowdown in the U.S. economy. That's driving volatility up in the U.S. And what, Ernesto, what role does like the impeachment drama uh, play in this? You know, it's obviously a very political story, but I feel like we haven't really explored the economic consequences of that yet. Should we be thinking about that? Or is is there sort of more to wait for before we get worried there? Well, if you see what's happened to the market as impeachment uh, events have unfolded, you really can't detect any effect. Mm-hmm. However, if you look forward uh, out a couple of years, if you think impeachment not only has a chance of happening, which I think is pretty much going to happen, but whether there is a removal from office scenario for President Trump, that would impact the markets negatively simply because that would provide the Democrats a much bigger chance 
of coming into office and the Democrat contenders that are leading the way are both uh, very left-wing types like uh, Elizabeth Warren and, and Bernie Sanders. And the market is definitely not ready for either of those. They have The market has not priced in either of those two becoming mm. president and, and the associated uh, uh, programs and yeah. policies that they would bring to, to the table. We actually have some coverage in the magazine this week, and it's all about the year ahead, looking forward to 2020. Obviously, the elections is a main point, uh, focal point for investors, but the whole idea that you'll start to see maybe early next year into spring, maybe late winter, early spring, where investors, based on how the polling is going, who gets the Democratic nomination, will start to maybe make some investment decisions yeah. around how that might play out. Remind us, you know, I'm curious about the names that get into your portfolio, like Baxter International. How does that become a name that is qualified to be in a low-vol equity fund? What is it that puts it there? Well, simply put, we have a very uh, data-driven process for evaluating stocks, 24 metrics, uh, are measured every day on every stock. What's one the, or two of the metrics? Uh, three categories of metrics, three buckets. Uh, the, the fundamentals of a company, quality and growth, mostly related metrics. Uh, the valuation of the company, mm-hmm. price to earnings, price to cash flow, uh, all, all the valuation-related metrics that you can think of. And finally, a sentiment measure, a uh, bucket of measures. So basically, the rise stocks from a fundamental perspective at the right price from a valuation perspective at the right time. So very mechanical, very data-driven process that right. gets us our top list. These stocks are up there because they have very stable, not the greatest growers in the world, but it's very stable operating models, very domestically focused, and that's the low-risk quality that, that drives them to be domestically focused because right now stocks that have a lot of exposure to international markets right. are more volatile, more risky, therefore they don't make it into the portfolio. And even when there is some downside, it's not falling off a cliff. Exactly. I'm looking at Baxter International. I mean, uh, it's actually doing pretty well this year. It's, I think, up about 20%, but it was up about 2% in 2018, 46% in 2017. But even in a down year, uh, I'm looking, what was it, 2015? It was just down about 4%. Yeah, and, and this is typical of the names that, that, that we hold in the low volatility portfolio. We have other portfolios that are much more aggressively yeah. positioned. Mm-hmm. But for right now, for the kind of environment we're living in, we think that taking exposure to stocks makes a lot of sense, but you don't want to do that in a very aggressive way. And we and, and, and the, the, the most important feature about this fund is that in up markets, it participates to about 70% of the way up. Right. But in down markets, it only participates fifty uh, percent of the way down, and with that kind of upside to downside ratio, favorable to upside, you're actually going to do quite well. In fact, you can actually beat the market, but with a lot less volatility, so you mm-hmm. can sleep better. You can you don't have to worry every right. night when you go to bed about your portfolio. Well, and it's interesting, AutoZone, another name that you like, I mean, that fits the bill exactly in terms of the sort of domestic exposure and something that people are going to keep doing almost regardless of what happens with the economy. And that name is up 33% this year, if I'm reading that right. Give us the case there. And up 18% last year. Well, it, 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 the case is that it scores very well in, in our 24 metrics or, or yeah. well enough in enough metrics that it makes it to the top. But the, the from a macro perspective, think about the fact that if we get a recession, people are not only not going to buy new cars, but they're actually going to keep fixing their old cars. So yeah. AutoZone is almost, uh, by definition, very resistant to any kind of economic downturn because it will do well 
regardless of, of how the economy is going. Ernesto, do you not care necessarily, or the algorithm that picks out these companies, do you not really care what their fundamental business is as long as they hit on those metrics? Well, the fundamentals are measured in eight different ways. Right. Related to growth, past and future, the, the quality of their balance sheet or the, the quality but of- But you don't care whether it's an auto parts company uh, or a healthcare company. Absolutely. That doesn't really matter. So the fund, no. what I mean, fundamentals pay me the wrong word, but you don't really care what business they are. You're not thinking about, oh yeah, people need to, do as whatever numbers, people are going to need health care you just care about the numbers as long as the numbers present a compelling story we're going to buy that and in fact that's the strength of, of the approach because it's so easy to fall in love with the story stocks yeah it's so easy to love to fall in love with a theme but most often than more often than not our research shows that it's not themes that drive or stories that drive stocks right. it's the actual numbers no emotion involved term. jason that's what it's all about man exactly. just follow the algorithm and the uh, equation and just buy in exactly. <laughs> yeah checks out all right thank you so much ernesto ramos portfolio manager for bmo looks after the low volatility equity fund based in chicago they're with carol in new york city there's your music Clapton. It's a Clapton song I like, and my husband's like, that's not real Clapton. Um, all right, so concerns about companies becoming too big and too dominant, breaking them up, well, it might bring about the great antitrust reawakening. Joe Nocera writes about uh, it this week in the year ahead issue of the magazine. He's here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York, along with Joe Weber, Bloomberg Business Week editor. Joe, you and I had a chance to talk about it for our weekend show coming up on radio and TV uh, this weekend. Tell us about the great antitrust reawakening. What is it? Uh, it is a movement that has been going on for a couple of years now, but has really gained momentum recently to, to say, uh, we've been too laissez-faire about antitrust, we've allowed too much consolidation, we've allowed the big tech companies, Facebook, Google, and Amazon, and maybe Apple, to get too powerful, and we have to do something about it. Not everybody agrees with this, but it is a rising movement that has gained a lot of momentum, especially in Congress, and I, I should say uh, some of the presidential candidates, starting with Elizabeth Warren. When you look ahead, Joe, to 2020, what do you think makes uh, the year of antitrust, perhaps, <laughs> different than moments before? Two, two things in particular. Uh, the first is, this is going to be the first presidential campaign since 1912, uh, when Teddy Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson, you know, when those guys were talking about monopolies. Trustbusters. It's, it's going to be the first time um, that it's really going to be front and center as an issue in a presidential campaign. What do we do about these big tech companies? What do we do about airline consolidation and all the other consolidation? The second thing that's going to happen is that for the first time in many a year, there are congressional hearings going on that are very seriously grappling with antitrust and are saying, you know, do we need to change the rules to make it easier to break up companies, to make it easier to stop monopolies, and to reduce the power of some of these big companies? And so, Joe, if you look at what we saw yesterday with Mark Zuckerberg, does that strengthen the case, weaken the case? How does that move it forward? One well, way or another? It, it reinforces the idea that it's not just Democrats who are mad yeah. at Facebook. You know, you know, you've got the whole Congress mad at these guys. <laughs> and um, it, it almost seems as if there's nothing Mark Zuckerberg can say that makes it any better. Um, so, you know, he has been quoted internally at Facebook at saying if Elizabeth Warren tries to break us up, you know, he'll go to the mat. Uh, uh, but, you know, he may have to at this point. 
And, jo- and Joel, this is all part of, you guys do a deep dive in terms of antitrust in the magazine this week and yeah, the year ahead issue. So, so Joe, we asked to write sort of the intro to it. And one of the, the goals when we do an overall package like this, I think it's like 12 pages in the magazine, is to say, look, there's this topic. How many different angles can we look at it through like so we came up with like a who's who list Mm -hmm. a glossary of things to know like if you did implement warren's plan what would that look like what does the google ecosystem actually look like why it could it even be considered a monopoly and and then on the other take is um what what would the defense like if you're if you're google what yeah what what are you gonna say and that's actually, Joe, the thing that I, I wanted to kick it back to you about is like a lot of the current thinking on monopolies goes back to this antitrust paradox, which you talked about in your intro by Robert Bork, right? Right. 1979 book. book yeah. and, and that was a kind of a watershed moment because it changed the tide in terms of sort of how Americans, I think, thought about these companies. And it's sort of this reckoning on, on sort of Bork's legacy. What do you make Ve- of that? Very, very much so. Uh, Bork said, forget about size which is what Americans always had been concerned about before, just how big is a company, how much market share. He said, forget about that. The only thing that should matter is whether it raises prices for consumers. It was called the Consumer Welfare Standard. It was adopted by the Chicago School of Economics, and then it was adopted very much by the courts. And it really became the law of the land. So here we are. And and especially now. Yes. Because, like, you use Google, it, it looks free to you. That's what makes it so difficult. So the consumer welfare standard can stop some some examples, but Google, Facebook, they're free. Amazon doesn't cause prices to rise, they cause them to go down. So under the consumer welfare standard, these companies are untouchable. And what the new antitrust people are saying is, we have to have a different standard because this standard is not stopping this extreme power that these companies have. Well, you also note in your story that Cambridge Analytica, that scandal, and we've only got about 50 seconds left, I mean, that changed the thinking about the power of these companies. Especially in Congress. That's the thing. Other people have been thinking about it, uh, but then Cambridge Analytica came along, and all these congressmen are like, whoa, that could happen to me. Right. And, and it changed their thinking. So to that end... Uh, there was a law student at Yale who wrote sort of a seminal paper a couple of years ago. And and I think her name is Lena Khan, right? Right. And, and this paper actually, I think, was one of these watershed moments again where it went from being, you know, kicked around in, in little circles to suddenly being like, oh, wait, there might actually be some legal grounds here. That's exactly what happened. And now she's on the staff of the antitrust subcommittee. So I think she's one of the ones to mm-hmm. watch as we go into next year because there's the big names the Warrens and stuff but the people who are actually really changing how people are thinking about it are people like Lena Khan well and also notable that some of the founders of these firms are weighing in on this and not in support of these companies getting any bigger great stuff it's great package in the magazine this week Joe Nocera columnist for Bloomberg Opinion he wrote the intro as Joel just described to a pretty deep dive into all things antitrust as we look at the year ahead. Joe and Joel Weber back in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is 
is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. Yes, indeed. Time for the drive to the close. I'm Carol Masser in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Jason Kelly in our bureau in Los Angeles. And we're really excited to have back with us Randy Watts, Executive Vice President, Chief Investment Strategist at William O'Neill and Company. He's in our New York studio along with me. He's done a lot of work uh, looking at the current earnings season so far. Several of the names already reporting uh, that uh, have come out on the results uh, are on their company's focus list. So we'll get into all of that. Welcome back. Hi, thanks for having me back, Carol. You have done a lot of work on earnings. Tell me what you guys have been looking into and what you found. Okay, so this earnings season has been very interesting in that the earnings season itself was coming in pretty good. Uh, about 33% of the S&P 500 is reported so far. Out of that, uh, 80% have beat earnings, which is a good number, right. and half have beat revenues. Uh, so is that that's, a good number? That, that's, a, that's a decent number. Okay. The, yeah. the, the number of companies that beat revenues is usually almost always lower than earnings because it's a little bit harder to manage. So they can manage their earnings a little bit tighter. Correct. Um, and they're beating on the earnings side by about 300 basis points, which is a, a decent normal level in line with the quarters from earlier in the year. What's, what's problematic, though, is the fact that the out-year estimates 2020 keep falling. And that's really been the trend all year. It continues in this quarter, and I think that's the one sort of risk for the market as we look ahead, right? Uh, the U.S. economy continues to kind of percolate along, led by the consumer. Mm-hmm. But earnings estimates for next year keep coming down. Right now, they we started the earnings season, people expecting a little bit more than 10% growth. Right now, people are looking for about 9.5% for next year. Well, so Randy, talk to me when you look at the aggregate is one thing, but when you look at a name like Twitter, we've sort of been obsessed with it today, and I think rightly so because it, Carol had a good line earlier, and I may misquote you here, Carol, but like it's sort of unfortunate and a little bit of a miss if the stock goes down 5 or 10%, but when the stock's down as much as it is, that's a, I think you used the disaster. word disaster. <laughs> um, what gives in a situation like that? So I think, you know, Twitter, Twitter's unfortunate in a couple of ways. First is they actually did grow their daily average uh, number of users, and right. that, was, that was actually up pretty good. We it was up 17% about that. Right. Uh, to 145 million. What's unfortunate, though, is that there are some self-inflicted problems in the quarter that cost them, you know, 300 basis points or so of revenue growth. And that includes issues with their personalization, uh, ad serving, and also with their mobile app. And so those, those hurt sales and, and cause them to miss the quarter. Technically, the stock obviously is having some problems today. It's, it's moved through the 200-day moving average on big volume. That's a negative sign. Yeah. We would hope that the stock could stabilize around the March lows, which are around $30. Uh, if it breaks through that, you're really looking at the December lows, which is really in the 20s. And it's been on your focus list. So this has been obviously a company that you think investors should look into, should buy. Uh, stock's up about 6.5% now today with um, the drop of 21%. But it was, so it was doing well up until this point. You guys are going to reevaluate in terms of the focus list after the close today? Exactly. You know, one of the things we do is we look at the fundamentals. We also look at the technical action and try to take our direction from both. Obviously, this is a pretty serious technical breakdown in terms of the volume of the stocks traded and the levels it's at. When you look, oh, go ahead, Jason. No, go ahead. Well, and you know, I love 
you know, Jason knows I get kind of a little excited about earnings, but I do also feel like companies have gotten very good at managing earnings and managing expectations. And I do wonder, you talk about the outlook in the 2020, I do feel like as we look at those numbers as well, companies are really bringing them down a lot. I'm just trying to, are they managing us big time so that they can outperform ultimately? Uh, companies absolutely do that. Generally, companies now beat on, a, on the median company usually beats by two to three percent on earnings pretty much every every quarter. Right. And what happens is during the course of the quarter, they bring the estimate down. So when they actually report, it actually looks like a good report. They have a harder time, obviously, managing revenues. But revenues have been pretty consistent for the market. If you look at the S&P 500, you know, revenues are growing about five percent this year. They're mm -hmm. forecasted to grow by about five percent next year. So I think I think that's not really the issue. The issue is going to be more profitability for next year. And we we do think internally that those numbers are still optimistic for next year in terms of earnings. Right. You know, nine and a half percent would be pretty, pretty good growth in earnings and be, and be a big acceleration from where we are today. And so when you think about, Randy, some of the macro issues out there, the geopolitical issues, specifically Brexit, the story that will not end, U.S.-China trade, similar, uh, what do you think are the biggest threats to where we are right now in this market? I think Business spending has obviously been very weak. We saw that you know, earlier in the month with the weak ISM manufacturing number, which has fallen below 50, which means that that spending is now shrinking. Uh, really can, I, can I stop there for a second? Because that's really important. I was just reading something this week. I think it's in the magazine. We're doing a, the year ahead issue, so some of the things you need to think about for 2020. But when you're light, excuse me, when you're late in a cycle, which is where we are at this point, Usually, it's business spending that kind of saves you and keeps it going. And if we don't get that, that is certainly something that could, could put at risk this economic cycle at this point, right? I mean, that is really important. It, it is important, but the way I think about it right now is really the U.S. consumer is carrying both our economy and the world economy. Can it continue to do so? And, and I think the hope is that it continues to do so until we get resolution on, on trade and we get through Brexit, and maybe that causes industrial spending to pick up so that i think mm. i think the u.s consumer spending is kind of holding the fort until the cavalry arrives and we hope the cavalry is going to be resolution on trade talks resolution on brexit and the fact that the the fed you know keeps cutting rates and eventually those rates kick in to help the economy get going a little bit so honey this is why i have to buy that other pair of shoes <laughs> yeah although as you say that randy it feels like that anymore <laughs> sometimes the consumer feels like uh we're sitting in the alamo uh you know you just don't know whether uh it's gonna take yeah. a turn but well, I, uh interesting i think one thing that's interesting is if you look at earnings season so far a lot of companies that that sell to kind of middle america have done better if you look at the the big banks that reported last week mm -hmm. you know a lot of their strength was driven by credit cards and auto loans. So again, the consumer. So yeah. across a variety of sectors, the consumer's been the strength, and really it's, it's been the, the corporate spending that's been weak. What does the sector rotation or sector trade, maybe more importantly, tell you about kind of where we are in this cycle? I think one thing you see is that a lot of the secular growth stocks are very widely owned by institutional investors. Yeah. And so they're, as we see with Twitter today, they're not tolerant of any miss. Whereas if you look at what Boeing and Caterpillar did yesterday, right, Cat had bad news, yet the stock hung in there because they're, yeah. they're under-owned. So I do think people are looking mm. for a reason to buy some of these cyclical stocks. Unfortunately, the macroeconomic fundamentals haven't gotten there yet. Yeah. All right. Well, always a smart conversation yep. with you, Randy Watts. We really appreciate it. EVP and Chief Investment Strategist over at William O'Neill & Company back in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio alongside Carol Masser. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio.